Hello and welcome to this week's Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. Since meeting at Central St. Martin's School of Art back in 1987, Ollie Williams and Susie Wynne Stanley, known simply as Ollie and Susie, have travelled the world together, tracking, painting, sketching and photographing endangered species in the wild. Their unique method of creating their art has led to exciting encounters and powerful bonds with bears and buffaloes, sharks and seals, hyenas, wildcats and more. Scuba diving is an integral part of what they do, allowing Ollie and Susie to get really close and interact with their subjects, despite the obvious challenges. In fact, one of their most extreme shoots involved taking their paints and paper underwater to capture great white sharks off the coast of South Africa, a story I'm dying to hear. Over the last three decades, their travels have taken them to jungles, deserts, the poles, remote wildernesses, and as they've learned more about and experienced the natural world at its most raw and humbling, they've become passionate conservationists, keen to highlight the man-made threats many of their subjects face. Their work is held in private and public collections, including the Damien Hurst Murder Me collection and at the Natural History Museum. And today I'm at their London studio in the heart of Chelsea to see some of their work in person and find out more about what drives these extraordinary artists. Ollie and Susie, I have the founder of Blue Marine Foundation, George Duffield, and also Sir David Attenborough's favourite cameraman, Doug Allen, to thank for introducing me. And I believe actually when you were on a trip with them, you were in the Antarctic capturing leopard seals. Tell me to start with a bit about that adventure that involved you and Doug and George. Yeah, so this was a, a trip that Susan and I have been contemplating for a while. It was rather beautiful because it coincided with a film that we were making with the BBC and George was producing. And the drive of the trip was to actually dive and go in search of and ultimately interact with leopard seals. And at the time, my job is generally to do with logistics and planning and stuff. I realised that there were very, very few people that had experience of this. Two of the people at the time, I think only about six or seven had ever dived and filmed leopard seals was Pete Skins and Doug Allen. They were a bit of a double act at the Beeb at the time. And I managed to track down Doug and Doug was like, ah, yeah, sounds cool. You know, you're artists and uh, yeah, definitely. And we were like, great, let's go. And he goes, oh yeah, plug you in here. It's going to be two years. And we were like, two years which was perfect actually, because it gave us the time to really do our training, get everything together. I'm a professional diver, but I wasn't experienced in dry suit diving in Arctic waters, Antarctic waters. So we needed to address that for the team and some fundraising and bits and bobs. So yeah, off we went. And it was, I think having Dougie on was just such a critical component because Doug is so laid back and so expert. He's, I think, he had three seasons in Antarctica where he never got home, right? It was something bonkers like that. And he was a British Antarctic Survey base diver. Every Christmas or spring, you know, Antarctica, when the boat would try to come in, he just couldn't get to the base. And so every year was like, oh, well, having Christmas on my own again, you know, like that. <laughs> so he's so knowledgeable. He's fantastic, Antarctica isn't he? And, this, and these polar dives. The rather precarious nature of this trip was the sail. And we had put a lot of research, I put a lot of research into identifying the right skipper, the right boat. The only small thing I had missed in my planning 
was the actual treacherous nature of the bit of sea we had to get across. It's like, oh, it looks a bit like the channel, you know, a couple of days. No, the Drake Passage was epically horrific, actually. And the reason that was so relevant to Doug was that the BBC had been filming, a, was it a Blue Planet or a Frozen yeah, Planet so, or something? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so they knew we were coming. So they just dropped him and his, his then partner on this teeny little island it called Deception in a teeny little tent. <laughs> and we had to have four days crossing 800 miles of ridiculous waves and seasickness and just not great. And then you get into the iceberg zone and then you get to Doug. And so if anything happened, we wouldn't have got to Doug. And he'd just been sitting on his little island. But, you know, when we saw him, and he was sort of waving at us, wasn't he? And Yeah. And what are your memories, Susie, of that trip? I mean, once you got through that treacherous crossing. Yeah, it wasn't so bad for me, actually. Ollie got very sick. It was kind of a white knuckle ride. So I was kind of scared because I'm quite scared of the water anyway. Although it's always great when I'm doing something in it. So I wouldn't just go swimming. It's not my thing at all. But when we're working, there's a point to it. And then, you know, really enjoy it. But yeah, I'm terrified of the ocean. So... I was very scared, but I wasn't ill like Ollie. Shame. Like, poor Ollie. <laughs> we didn't see him for like three days. We set off from a place called Ushua. It, it Just think, if you have not been there, it's like the kind of the Alaska, British Columbia of Argentina, but it's in the south. We met our boat. The boat looked great. It was mirror calm. And you have this 10-hour motor, not under sail, down a thing called the Beagle Channel. And it's beautiful. It's just mountains and snow-capped peaks and forests. And oh, this is epic. And in the galley was a copy of Outside Magazine. And the title was The Everest of Sailing. And it was quite well thumbed. And we had this great skipper, Dave Wilkins, who's just a legend, like Mr. Chilled. He always wore shorts. He is a Tasman from Hobart. So he was amazing, constantly smoking, eating chili, like what? Anyway, so I said, Dave, what's the story? The Everest is saying, he goes, yeah, mate, that's the Drake. You better sample it. At which point, within half an hour, he said, oh, look, there's the, was it Cape Horn or Cape of Good Hope? I forget, it's the one which is there. And the seas were rolling and we started doing a drawing and, and we can actually show you some of those drawings where we just put the pencil on the paper, a bit like a kind of a heart rate monitor. It so it like, kind of drew yeah. itself. And then I was like, wow. And then I, how many days of this? Four days. And uh, force 10 the whole time. Wow. Us pushing wow. Us down. So we had amazing speed. We were like 26, 30 knots. And the big. aim here was to get to leopard seals. Just was it to was get that to, the to get to the, but you were there to capture the leopard seals. We were there, yeah, not well, to, let's, not to capture them. <laughs> we were there. No, <laughs> let's rephrase that too. Dive with them yeah, and draw them. And, and draw them. Our experience, we worked a lot in ocean with sharks and whale sharks and orcas and things like this. But we were very aware that tragically this leopard seal had recently a british antarctic survey researcher had been killed by a leopard seal it wasn't i don't believe a case of sort of you know like a shark attack it was a, a case of i believe being pulled under by the fin and then she was snorkeling and and it's very very sad and doug was very current on this situation but he explained it to us in terms where it was like okay we're on scuba so that's a safety feature. We've also got Dougie with us with his innate knowledge of the species. But you do sometimes get a, a very aggressive leopard seal. So this was always in the back of our mind. 
And when you're with white sharks, we've been in cages or for most of the time anyway. But there was none of that. This was not just a leopard seal. It was just the actual conditions. And fortunately, as you cross the Drake, you hit, is it called the zone Antarctica or something? And, and you hit the sort of iceberg zone, at which point everything calms down. But then you have a new threat, which is ice and icebergs. And you meander through this. And really, we had about a month then of once we arrived on the peninsula. I don't think anyone got ill after that. No. And it was absolutely gorgeous Um, and flat calm and just like, oh, just beautiful. The icebergs are incredible because they look like they're sort of lit from inside. That blue, it's just a crazy place. Beautiful sort of luminescence coming through them, isn't there? But what's it like, Susie, when you're trying to paint or to draw the leopard seal? So presumably you're in the water. Yeah, yeah. Describe that process. Oh God, it's kind of, well, for me, it's really stress getting in because it's that, the, the, um, what's it called when you go down? Equalizing, I find really difficult and I'm always a bit scared because I'm in the water and think, but once you're down there, it's so calm and so beautiful and just watching animals in their natural habitat, which is why we ended up going into the world in the first place. Um, You see them, you know, as they're meant to be and very relaxed. And most of the time, they're not aggressive. Any animal, wild dogs, everything we've painted, you know, because we're there. I feel like they can feel our energy if we're just drawing a picture. We're not in any way aggressive we just want to observe them and stuff so it's the most magical thing but what about the fact that you're actually drawing that picture underwater what i mean logistically obviously it's a bit crazy and we have this board that we clip our paper to have very thick absorbent paper like 300 grams and also obviously being two people that's always been a thing whether we're on land or under the sea um to try and kind of get in the right position with an animal there you know it's a bit of a faff but we've been doing it for so long we've got a little method and we just figure it out you've got a little method developed over 30 years (laughs) yeah yeah. it's interesting like it was worse my seeing the leopard seal for the first time on the ice was more sort of trepidatious. It was more, it concerned me more because I recognised what I was looking at. And, you know, if you've spent any time with apex predators, be they whales or fish or mammals, there's a look. It's, you know, predators do not have their eyes on the side of their head. They have their eyes firmly fixed on the front of their head because that's what they're doing, they're hunting. They've generally got these huge, great skulls and, and craniums with broad muddle, muzzles, be it a wild dog or a lion or a leopard or a jaguar or, you know, even a, a golden eagle is a heavy-duty-looking bit of kit, you know, it's proper. And and I look, and we, the first one we found, I remember he had this sort of ginger forward slash rusty muzzle, which, of course, was dried blood. And he was just look. he was lying, and that's the other thing, not bothered. So he's just looking at us on this berg and we're just silently going past. And I'm thinking, I actually remember saying to George, listen, I mean, this is just wonderful, but you know, if it's not meant to be, it's not meant to be. (laughs) Because I was thinking, actually, what is going to stop that 12 foot, which is in, in in fact the Antarctic polar bear from having a pop, you know? So as I feel quite responsible for Susie and myself, and my children, I took down a ski pole because I figured Doug had this 
whacking great, you know, proper camera, um, amazing housing film camera, not just a fake, you know, a film camera. And Doug's not, you know, vast. So if he got his knees up, he's got a really good buffer between, I, I, these are the things I'm thinking about. Susie's not thinking about these things. She's thinking about, I just want to draw. I'm thinking about I'm also thinking how about to fight a leopard seal. Trying you know? to actually get down there because I'm not a professional diver like Ollie and I, he helps me so, I, I can't dive with anyone else except with him. All done. He's checking my air. He's doing everything. So I'm just like, ooh. So yeah, I don't have to think about those things. So you do. But <laughs> under the water. What was a while we were so fortuitous was that this leopard seal just glided. I don't think we ever saw its teeth. And Doug's partner, who we'd gone to uh, Copenhagen to get the, these special dry suits fitted because we needed a really good kit. And Doug said, Look, we'll just pop off there on EasyJet. Let's get these suits. He's my mate. And this guy is called Goran. He's this expert ice diving dude swede he had had the most polar experience of leopard seal he had gone down with national geographic massive budget and um and and he and, and the, you know the big film crew and he said i'm just going to go off in the zodiac went off in the zodiac saw the leopard seal on the ice just like we did the leopard seal slips in and goes for it like ripping the zodiac to pieces the teeth, the whole lot, just giving it, trying to get in the Zodiac. And he, you know, and, and I think he even got in the water. It was just horrendous. He's pushing this thing off and he got back onto the boat. Like, you know, quarter of a million pound budget, the film crew, everyone going, oh my God. We had none of that. But that was in our head. We just had this thing that just moved and twirled. And what was, was so extraordinary for us, vis-a-vis -vis the Goran experience, was this inquisitive, twisting, twirling, beautifully sleek, nearly serpentine creature coming towards us. People ask us about dangerous animals and all of that stuff, but it's mostly the environments are probably more hostile than the actual animal. I mean, we're lucky to get any encounter and see an animal, actually. So what you're kind of battling with, if anything, is the environment. Those are more kind of more difficult things to battle with. I to somebody who hasn't read a lot about the, the way you work together, Susie, how is the layman's terms that you describe what you and Ollie do? Because it's so unusual. Yeah, it's definitely quite weird. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. How do I explain it? Well, we met at college and we just literally started drawing on each other's work on the same piece of paper. We draw together. We find a point. Normally, if the eyes or the face and then we just move around each other's lines and marks that we make crossing each other's stuff out sometimes or you know it's very free and but I think maybe it's free because we've done it for so long I don't know but then how did the idea come about to go and feature animals all over the world and to have this interaction I mean explain a bit about the animals you paint and draw often yeah. have an interaction with the canvas or the paper that you're working on we went to central St Martins in London and then in our second year we went to Syracuse University in New York and while we were there we were reading about North American Indian beliefs and how they roll with animals basically their love of them as brothers 
And so we decided that we wanted to work about predators and everything that comes underneath that, including their environments. So our initial work, I'd say we did a lot of stuff in zoos, from books and photographs and stuff. And then when we finished college, we decided we wanted to go and see them out where they are in their natural habitats. And I guess from there, we started doing the interactions where we would just draw from life and then leave our paper to try and maybe get a bite mark or a footprint, which is basically a sort of proof of it's here now and maybe it might not be forever. We learnt a lot about that kind of the instinct of these creatures by spending time no more than our 25 years working with Tony Fitzjohn and Lucy Fitzjohn in Makamazi with wild dogs. Wild dogs, yeah. Wild Where dogs, we have Susie. just the most unfettered access, you know, just amazing. Yeah, we were sitting outside actually waiting for Ollie, weren't we, in the sunshine? And we started talking about your favourite animals. Yeah, I think you said wild dogs, which you said you'd save for our chat. <laughs> what is it about wild dogs? Oh, I've never seen God. a wild dog, Susie. They're so like? beautiful and elegant and smart and just, oh my God. I think, well, from drawing point of view, they're just the most, to me, most inspiring of animals. And I think that exactly what Ollie said, we've, the access that we've had has just been so incredible. We'd probably go twice a year, was it be? I don't know, mm. sometimes three times, because they're in enclosures before they get re-released. So we were allowed to be in the enclosures and just work all day, basically, every day that we were there. And where is this? In Mukamazi in Tanzania, Mukamazi Game Reserve. And mm. our friend Tony Fitzjohn, he worked for how many years? You know that he's... Yeah, so Tony came up under George Adamson. He was a legend, wasn't he, in legend, conservation and passed and away our, fairly recently. Yeah, and he's like one of our best mates and he was godfather to my daughter. Oh. Yeah, it's really sad. Was he really supportive with your work and a great fan of what... Yeah, huge. ...what you two create together? Yeah, absolutely. He had great respect and we have great respect for him. And he allowed us just to come whenever we wanted. We'd become really close with the rest of the family. And it was just a dream for us to be with them. And the wild dogs, oh my God. We must have been painting for over 20 years now. But what was extraordinary about Fitz is he, he never, and the whole family, they're not like some big, rich sort of Kenya situation with, you know, trust funds and everything. This guy works for the government. And he works for the national parks or the Kenya Wildlife Service or in Tanzania, Tanaka, and the government. And he comes in with the mindset of, I really don't know what I'm doing, but he innately knows exactly what he's doing because of the respect. Really, it's all about the respect that he's got for the wildlife he's worked with, primarily lion. So his mission in Mukamazi was to come into a hunting block that was just ravaged, not a lot of game. We got in there 95, I think he got in there 92. And within 10 years, he had, and his amazing Tanzanian team, 
he had basically selected a group of very loyal guys. Each one, one guy became the elephant guy. One guy became Sangeeta, became the wild dog guy. Another guy became the head man, Elisaria, amazing, like Fitz is number two. And Zachariah became the lion guy. They all had these incredible roles. And the net result was Mukamazi game reserve. You can hunt in a reserve in Tanzania, became Mukamazi National Park. And considering him and George had done that in Kenya with Cora, he's the only man in East African history to have gazetted two national parks or facilitated the gazetting of those national parks within his and his team's lifetime. So it's only got the OBE for that. And it's just an amazing character, but done in the most down to earth, <laughs> foulest possible way. And just the best bloke. At first, I think when we rocked up, he was a bit like, who are these chances? I mean, the BBC, in the film we did with Storyville, he sort of says that. He's like, oh, I'm not sure about them. And I think it just, the grounding we had in common was just this love, South London kids or London kids who just really had this deep, profound love of nature, wildlife, and were involved with exploring those bridges. And that's a huge part of what we're about, is trying to explore that bridge. You know, because we are not independent of all this stuff we might live in london or sue's in london i mean you know we'll live in houses we'll have cars but when you spend as much time in the bush as we have it's patently obvious you cut away you get out on the food chain you're out of your comfort zone you realize you're a species and not a very impressive one with what god gave us innately with our physiology our brains are pretty switched on but we are a species like any other and I think this is what connects Fitzy to what Susie mentioned about the, the, the North American Indian philosophy. It's something we've seen in nearly all our tribal experts we've worked with, trackers, conservationists, field researchers, indigenous people, anyone that spends any time at all in the bush are humbled by it. And the only problem we have as artists who've been banging on this drum for 33 years, is as the great Valdemar Januksak says of the Sunday Times, kind man, he's, he likes our work. I believe we, we look at him as a friend, but he's a critic. And he does identify the fact that in our little world, art, the art world have a very urban view on art. That is where art is sought. That is where the groovy artists, as Valdemar would say, have prospered their subject matter, their habitat is that. And so where that leaves us is in a very interesting place. And it all comes back to Susie's point about that in a way, our mission is to be rigorous and relentless in just slowly and steadily keeping the line going about nature, environments, wild animals, places, peoples, that's what we do. And hopefully you know? through our drawings, which are often quite strange and not like any, it's not wildlife art, they're not photographic representations, it's not supposed to be. We're trying to feel how the animal is and be in their environment and understand that a bit as well. And But hopefully it starts a conversation about that animal, about that important subject, about that environment that needs to be looked after, treasured, 
and worshipped basically and that's all we've got but people don't seem to in the past have seen it as such an important subject matter but it really is. Do you think over the 30 years that you've been working together have you seen society's attitudes change a bit? Yes I think so but it's very weird because living in London you see things and you see people sort of jumping on a bandwagon as more of a fashionable thing sometimes. However, we've met all these incredible people who are not just doing it for anything else other than real love and devotion. I started to write more and more about the encounters because I was thinking, yeah, we've got this big old art book that's 15 years out of date and it's brilliant because it tracks a 10-year period where we just worked in the field, literally. No house keys, no relationships other than our own just out in the bush, one trip leading to another, free as a daisy, in the wild, precariously doing this stuff. But since then, if you do something today, sometimes you don't quite know why you're doing it. Fitz always used to say that, oh, I don't know why, mate, I'm just doing, I just got a feeling. And I think that those feelings we've understood, I've certainly understood the emotions that those encounters have gifted me. And so those short stories and I do everything the long way around so I sort of write a 375 page book about those encounters and slowly 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 you're going to have my first collection of poetry called The Draw of the Wild which is a distillation of all those things and I had no idea about poetry it's just found me but I don't see it any different to the painting and drawing it's just another form that helps express share what we feel and it's the same when we run trips for people. It's not about trying to be a travel agent. It's like, oh, you want to do something that we've done or with experts we know, then let us help you. Because in a way, conceptually, that's nearly the manifestation of art. Art used to be the Sistine Chapel, right? It was for everyone. And so when we did our Natural History Museum show, that was just the most obvious place to connect with an audience who were engaged with this subject matter most visited building in Britain. It's not that we shun the art world, we're just not that bothered because we're artists. So our responsibility is to sharing our art with the world. And by definition, to quote Rick Rubin, not mine, but he's his genius at saying things on behalf of artists, by definition, you're successful when you release something you care about creatively to the world. And it is interesting because we're not going to help our planet by just politics. You're not going to help our planet just by Warren Buffett writing a check and then someone nicking half the money. We're not going to do it by just listening to scientists. The scientists like to science. They have a dilemma. How do they communicate? So the very best scientists write awesome books and explain it to idiots like me. So we need art. We need science, we need politics, we need philanthropy, we need everything, we need, and we need everyone to give a damn. Susie, we so, need everyone, know, don't we? Everyone. Because It's not going to work. Because this isn't going to happen and we're not going to solve the climate crisis if everybody doesn't do their bit exactly. and you've got that multiplication of the billions of people on our planet. Do you find, I sometimes wonder whether this problem is so large and so frightening yeah. that People bury their head in the yeah, sand. Absolutely. How yeah. do you hope that your work can help? And, and where do you think we are with the planet? Are you going to bed at night worried about our kids and our kids' yeah. kids' well, future? Yeah, well, I think so. And I think that's why they're so aware because 
so real and it's so in your face and you know have we missed the point of no return possibly however as ollie said all we can do is what's within our control and focus on the parts of the planet that we know and have access to and care about and share the message and try and just open people's minds it's interesting because when you're an artist you have to sell work and then do the next trip or make the next work and we've been able to share a lot of the messages with the people who buy our work who then end up either going on a trip or just becoming interested in whichever animal and for me that's a good place to start what would be the moments that you think that was absolutely breathtaking or magical or I'll take that to the grave there are so many but if actually our first encounter with a wild animal outside of our experience when we were at college and, and driving across America and we saw some wild animals there was a real, you know, crazy, beautiful beast. It was an elephant. We did this walk along a river. We weren't in a national park. It was an, an area called the Northern Frontier District of Kenya where you might have gone with Charlie. And we were following up this river called the Wasaniro. And it was a 10-day walk with camel and Samburu guides. It was a mate, it was so raw. We'd sort of sit under these little acacia trees, thorn trees for shade. And it was everything we were in search of. It was our first trip. We were out there for three months. This is where we didn't, we'd left our studio. Definitely wasn't glamping. That's it wasn't sure. glamping. And, <laughs> and suddenly we had this bass reverberation coming to us through the thorn. And there was this bright orange elephant visited covered in ochre and he was a bull and he was right there and I had been reading Broad Blixen, Karamoja Bell, all these guys of a military background so I was instantly thinking fuck you know the guys that have a gun I'm like what the hell our instinct is to just follow what the guy does and he just says stop so we stopped and then we took a knee and we just sat and watched this thing and Susie, out of her bush bag, pulled out a stub of graphite, which was our go-to bit of kit. We had a little watercolour set, a little graphite and a little rubber. Opened up the sketchbook and started to draw. And this laser-like focus, and I'm standing behind her, I'm like, all right. So I've knelt and I creep in and I start to add my mark. Later on that night, I remember saying to Suze, I was so aware that if that bull elephant wanted to it would have absolutely trampled us and much 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 more experienced non-hunting elephant experts have been trampled to death by bull elephant that you know female whatever and sue said i feel that elephant understands our intention and i thought wow i knew i liked working with susie but at that moment i was like i'm with the right person here he choked me up with that yeah. story. Proper. Yeah. He's choked up, Susie. <laughs> do you feel... It doesn't do you, take much these days. Not any, Big not old softy. Oh, do you feel that connection, though, with your subjects often? I think you do. I think it's a big journey to get on a plane, do all these things, research, blah, 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 and you get there, and finally, then you see the animal that you've been searching for. And that's why you're there, is to try and represent it, try and capture it and that's the good bit underwater i'm terrified when i see the animal it's like oh, great you know and then suddenly that's what you're doing and there's no fear because i don't know you just feel like i've come in peace buzz Lightyear. <laughs> as you're saying that i'm looking at 
Well, I'm not sure what I'm looking at. I think I'm looking at you two in a cage. Oh, yeah. Painting we a great... It's intention there. I'm really like <laughs> shock coming at you. I really don't want to forget to ask you about that story, Susie, because, I mean, that is one of the more extreme of your adventures. Yes. What was that like, going underwater in your scuba kit, in a cage? What was the purpose behind that trip? And how did it feel when the shark came to well, I think, visit? I think initially... Um, it was terrifying because, you know, of all the films that we watch and everything and all your preconceived ideas. So when we got in there and the shark came towards us, I remember screaming through my mouthpiece. But then you see them, they're just swimming around. They're not trying and, you know, all these animals, they're not on mission to kill you. It's not that. It doesn't feel like that. And once you start observing them, they're just beautiful, incredible creatures. And in fact... We did that trip. Later on from the boat, we floated a painting, which wasn't necessarily one of our best, but we happened to get a great photo of the shark biting the painting. And we got With this, my brother Greg, this tooth marks. An amazing photographer. It was kind of what we wanted to achieve. However, when we came back and we talked about it a lot and everyone was excited by this scary photo with the shark with the big teeth, I remember saying to Ollie, we discussed it a lot of like, we're not trying to show the animal like that because the animal most of the time is not like that. It's beautifully swimming around and doing its thing. So we then went back and did some more work again with Ollie's brother and we got a way better photograph and a way more honest interaction. I think we had that time where you just see this beautiful shark. looks almost like it's flying, suspended, beautiful. 10 days in the chop of the Southern Ocean out of a place called Hermanus or Hansby every day. Yeah, we saw sharks. We got in with sharks, but it wasn't right. And then one day this five and a half meter white shark rocks up and we've been covering our work in chum and we floated it out on this board. And what was amazing, Ollie Crimmen, who's the director of fishes at the Natural History Museum, said, what a wonderful bite reflex. And I think that this was just unbelievable. And this is the classic collaboration. And that's a huge part of what we do. We're with amazing shark researchers, Craig Ferrer and his team. We're with my brother, who is the consummate moment catcher. Then there's me and Susie who've conceived this concept with Greg and then the execution, boom, to catch it. But the problem with it is it was wonderful. And I think... This happened in 1997. It coincided with us sort of emerging out. We'd had about five years of working in the bush. Well, also it starts the conversation. If anything, it it does start a conversation. However, for me, it's not the conversation that we really wanted to have. We want to have a conversation about how beautiful they are, how we need to protect them, how we need to protect their environment. And it's a little that. bit Jawsy, right? Yeah, it's very it's actually, it is a bit it Jawsy, Jawsy, isn't it? But as an artist and for any artists listening or would-be artists listening, it's incredibly important that if you're going to do something new or pioneering, you need to kind of articulate that visually. You yeah. can't talk about it. Oh, I'm going to be great. Are you? If we'd come back and gone, oh, yeah, look, here's the piece and it's been bitten out, we can show you works that wolves are bitten and you'll be like, hmm, really? But you know now because we'll show you evidence. And that's what we had to do. And I think we were very aware, not of people's cynicism, but just of our species, right? So we're aware of our species. And if you're an 18th century explorer, 
standing cap in hand under the balcony at number one Savile Row, which used to be the Royal Geographical Society, begging for money to go and pioneer some expedition somewhere. You better come back with evidence of what you've done. So like those old dudes, we came back with evidence, a bitten piece of paper, a photograph, the actual work and a story. And it was putting those together. But here's what Susie pioneered when we went back. And this is the piece from the Murder Me collection, which is Carcaridon. I would say exactly what we had in mind. We wanted it black and white. We wanted this full creature floating in the blue. It's a slightly smaller shark in much better visibility in another part of the, the world. This is the Pacific Mexican waters, Isla Guadalupe. But it's so and much again, more honest. It's much it's more honest. That is what they're doing now, right? They're not running, going swimming around biting. They're not biting paintings. Yeah, do you exactly. know what I mean? Unless yeah. you put a painting for them to bite. Yeah. Why is that interaction, Ollie, so important? Because your subjects interact a lot, don't they? I've yeah. seen crocodiles interact and lions. And is it not it so important, important now? now? As an artist, you're constantly, you're as good as your last piece of work, right? And that's very humbling. You walk in the footsteps of other artists, that's another thing. So there's nothing really that original in art, insofar as we've chosen to be of the very British school that seems to make work outdoors and in a contemporary conceptual way too. We're driven by a love of nature along with billions of other great artists or hundreds at least. But I think where we have evolved is it's like if you're a boxer coming up through the ranks, right? So you come up, you have a few wins and then you, you actually defeat a half decent opponent and now you get ranked. And suddenly I think when media started paying attention, when galleries started paying attention, when collectors started paying attention, that was an interesting dilemma to, well, what do we just keep churning out that stuff? Or are we gonna push on now? And as one of this very beautiful elder statesman of the art world, a guy called Eric Frank once said to us, don't worry about moving on. He goes, you will struggle for a period because they're gonna want you to keep doing the same thing but you need to evolve and you'll get there. He was saying, and most dealers would be like, and he dealt this piece to, to Hearst, you know, it, this was a real new evolution for us with our art photography, our collaborative art photography with Greg, which wasn't an interactive piece. And he supported that fully and look what happened. It actually got into a really good collection. And that was having the balls to say, actually, yeah, we're known for this. But now we're doing this and it's like coming back to the studio. Well, how do we do that? Because we're known now. We've got this big book, like, oh, and the BBC film saying, oh, these guys work in the wild. And here we are in a sweet little cottage in Chelsea making work. But actually, because we've got 25 years before we got back into the studio, we've got the information and we've got the experience to say it's okay. Everything we're doing is still about that thing. If we had just done this, probably wouldn't be quite so exciting. But now we do both. And so I think even though we paint and draw on paper, the manifestation of that has evolved greatly. And we're calmer. Doesn't mean our life is any, in any shape or form sorted. It isn't. We are still relatively hungry artists. However, the actual, the yearning, the drive to see everything now and do it tomorrow is now muted. You've got 30 something years of experience. You know, you've learned along the way, probably the hard way sometimes, 
into very remote places you've been and I'd feel very comfortable traveling somewhere with you, but I wouldn't feel comfortable trying to sort out a trip like that by myself. And you're doing that for other people. I think the Kingdom of Tonga, Humpback Whales, Eagle Hunters in Western Mongolia, trips that you're putting together. What kind of magic can people experience through the trips that you help them organize? I can't explain how beautiful these places are, but the wonderful thing about being in these places for me is feeling so small and feeling part of something that's bigger than me and out of my control. And obviously the animals, they're all cherries on the top. Just being in the environments, that's the special thing about it all. Susie's fast becoming expert in an area I've never been to. But I started off planning and she just went Hang on, she's it. been somewhere without you, Ollie. Yeah. Did she I have mean, your permission is, for this? Yeah, this, <laughs> no, this is Susie's insert, like my wild bit in Sweden. This is Susie's, you know. Yeah, I found it. my place after my mum died in 2016. I went to the Atacama Desert and we were going to do a trip there and we never did and we were busy doing lots of other things. Anyway, I went and... It's just the most incredible environment. It's the driest desert in the world. And it's the Andes is right there. I don't even know how to explain these places. It's probably why I'm a visual artist and not a verbal one. Did you find <laughs> it healing as well, if that's where you went yes, after well, you lost your mind? Yes, well, it's quite funny because I was thinking about that. They have lithium mines there and all these different, like, just, uh, you're so... In the environment, like you're not, you can't hide from it. And it's so remote and hostile. However, it's so exhilarating and, oh, I don't know, inspiring. Um, you, say, you say you connect it to Makamazi look, don't you? Yeah, you're I mean, it's the same. It looks the same. Looks like the volcanoes. You know, it's, it's like, it's incredible. It's, it's just, dry heat. It's dry not, heat. Not it's gentle. Heat. And I think as well for me personally, because there's no humidity in the air, you can see really far. And for me, it's like, it feels so clear and clean and high altitude and it's just incredible. And um, Bear's so. Nest is your retreat. So there I was researching you both and I didn't expect to come across a house and garden piece with yeah. your beautiful Great little Lisa for that, that hideaway. Yeah. That's, that's your wife or partner, isn't it? What that was, that was an antidote to a three-bed garden flat in Clapham with a crazy my lad well he's now a professional rugby player and he's in New Zealand hunting down his dream but when him and his sister living in this teeny little flat in Clapham and I'll come back off trips and I was like mm, wow I let you know love London and stuff because I'm from here but it just wasn't happening how would you describe Bear's Nest we're sitting now in a 20 by 30 foot cabin in Chelsea that we rent with a 15 foot pitch and a mezzanine where you sleep. Well, you are inside our cabin. The only difference is there's a huge great wood burning stove, there's a porch, and you're looking out onto hundreds of miles of just wilderness, of taiga forest in the high Arctic. In, in, it is actually high Arctic, it's nearly 70 degrees. It's muskeg swamp, as they'll call it in Alaska. There they just call it swamp. And it's black spruce and rolling mountains, reindeer and brown bears and eagles. And it's crazy. It's, it's literally it's, picture postcard kind of trees with snow on and just yeah, it's beautiful. beautiful. And it's hardcore. You're six clicks, six kilometers away from the village. So you either walk, ski, snow machine, dog sled, whatever. It's off grid, no running water, no electricity. So there's a thing. You want a cup of tea, make the fire. You want to go to the loo, put on the snow boots. 
melt snow, we bring in a bunch of supplies and we do have good coverage. So from a security standpoint, it's good for having little kids growing up there who are now big kids. Having 4G was always pretty good, thanks to Ericsson, I guess. It was amazing and it was just facilitated by these wonderful people that Susie and I first met. We wanted to do a trip where we we'd worked a lot in Alaska, worked a lot in Canada, and now we wanted to understand our own indigenous peoples in Europe. And so we wanted to stay with the Sami reindeer people. So off we set, we didn't really have too much to go by. We knew where they were, so we went up and we found this wonderful couple who lived in this village who was half Sami and they became great friends. We stayed with this reindeer herder for a period and I just kept going back and it was a hell of a lot cheaper to get to Northern Sweden than to Alaska, Canada, and obviously part of the EU back in those days. And it was just joy. And then slowly but slowly, I was able to purchase a small plot of land in the middle of nowhere. Because you don't need, you know, I'm not into this ownership thing because I just have a deal like don't build a KFC with an eyesight of me. You know what I mean? And that's never going to happen because no one wants to go there. It's just amazing. And then I think I that think- sums it up. We like places that no one else wants to yeah. go to. And the stars are much better than in Clapham, Molly. No light pollution on clear cold nights we're often there from sort of any time from november through to sort of june certainly in the darker months out to april you will have a good chance of seeing aurora which is amazing it's particles hitting the ionosphere bursting into these amazing swarming swirling greens and sometimes pinks and blues it's just it's amazing and my very long enduring half Greek wife Lisa who you've talked to is she's raised two children going there with norovirus and all manner of things that all children get Lisa was the one that pioneered and wrote this beautiful story that inspired House of Garden to come and it was funny because the editor and the photographer came and they were so lovely and I said you do realize you're this is going to be the smallest most humble house you've ever photographed in House and Garden put them up in an Airbnb in, in the village and then we took them out every day on snow machine and took them on expeditions up to the mountains with all my team and we had fires and ate reindeer and had saunas and a few ales. It was great. Oh, but I that's in a way, if I'd had the money, maybe I'd have a nice place in Wiltshire or a Bothy in Scotland. But for a fraction of that, you could live in a log house in, in the Arctic, you know. My dream's a little pod on the Isle of Harris. There you go. You know, no, no people. Is that, is that Scotland? Yeah, oh, it's the Outer Hebrides. It's absolutely Hebrides stunning. Tiger. White beaches, pristine water. Actually, land isn't very expensive. I'd love a little <gasps> contemporary pod with Get some big now. windows. Yeah. Yes. Eagle watching. Oh, fishing. Yes. Oh, my being God. Being along with nature, walking yeah, on those really. pristine beaches. Mm-hmm. Lots of I'm hikes. still trying to get Ollie to come to be a bit more involved with South America. We've done a bit of South America together, but another place I'm obsessed with is Mexico. Well, you pulled that off already. Hopefully we're going to do that next year. Yeah, with A bit of diving, but also there's another animal that I really think we should go and draw, which we haven't really discussed. They call it the tequila bat. It's this long-nosed bat that feeds on the agave plant and pollinates that's why we've got tequila i don't even drink but i'm just saying people are now kind of slightly interested but they understand why it's so important you only have tequila because of the agave yes it literally eats its food it's got a tongue i was reading about it's tongue is like a third of its body length or something 
and it gets in there, it feeds itself, but then also they come out yellow. I've got vision of oh, our paintings could be so amazing because yeah. they come so out all yellow, all pollinate, yeah. and then they move to the next one and thing, whatever. And this amazing guy is telling people who don't really like bats, most people don't, but now he's explaining to them, like, this is how we can have tequila, which is obviously important to people. So now people are... And where a bit are the more bats? Where do you find them? I don't know. George and Doug said that I'd fall in love with both of you. And Aww. I have. I love your work. Want to see more of it. I'm going to have a little nose around the studio now. It's so nice being around pens and charcoals and pencils oh, and paints and all that kind of thing. <laughs> so thank you both. You've been you. very generous with your time. Thank and you. Wish you all the best for all your future projects and your bats. Yes. Yeah, yes. Indeed. You've got to go. Bats you. next. <laughs> You've been listening to wildlife artists Ollie and Susie. If you want to find out more about their work, or the wonderful expeditions they organise, then go to their website, ollysusie.com. That's Ollie with a Y and Susie, S-U-Z-I. Download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple and Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to yours. I'll be back next week with another interesting guest, probably one guest next week. So see you then.